Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it encourages us. And just like we talked about um, a minute ago about birth, that as we draw closer and closer to your return, the birth pangs get harder and harder and the contractions get closer together. But as we do, we are you've given us your word to have confidence in you and and in anticipation for for your return. So I thank you for this book of revelation, this book of revealing who you are. And Lord, may we never miss that, that this book is about you. It's about the culmination of you reconciling all things to yourself according to your plan of salvation. So speak uh, through this foolish preacher. Draw us, Lord, with our hearts to you and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So now we come to the end of the book of Revelation, this book of revealing. Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's where we get our English word for apocalypse. It simply means an unveiling, like you would unveil a a piece of art. If you recall, the Holy Spirit gave us a divine outline in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, which Jesus instructs the Apostle John to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, past tense, the things that are, present tense, and those that are to take place after this. John saw in chapter 1, the glorified, resurrected Christ in full glory. Who better to write this apocalyptic letter than the Apostle John himself? Because John, after all, saw Jesus behind a veil of flesh. Jesus hid his glory, full glory, behind a veil of flesh. Of course, if Jesus revealed his full glory to us now, we would all be dead. But John got to see Christ in his humanity, and then he got to see Christ in his deity. So in chapter 2, we read about the church, more specifically, the seven letters to the seven churches uh, that John wrote to in that day. These were actual letters to actual churches in Asia Minor, but they also represent a different facet in, uh, throughout the church age. You could run each church through the grid of one of these seven letters and, and you could tell a lot about a church by those seven letters. And then in chapter four, we hear John's, John hears a voice which says, come up here. And he sees a door that's open in heaven and immediately was transported, or if I could use the word raptured, into to the heavenly throne room of God. And here we see the throne room of God. In the throne room of God, his divine counsel, the 24 elders, And we see these four weird creatures before the throne had eyes full around and within. And then in chapter five, we see this scene, this this scroll that's in the right hand of the father. This mysterious scroll, which I believe to be the title deed to planet Earth. I did a sermon on this. If you want to go back and listen to it, you can. And you can either agree or disagree. Um. And once the title deed, which I believe is taken from the hand of the Father by the Lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus then begins to take that sealed document and he begins to loose the seals one by one. And as Jesus looses the seals, bear in mind the church is tucked away with Jesus in heaven, that the seals unleashes a judgment on planet Earth. 
which is chapters 6 through 19. Those are the judgment chapters. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying these judgment chapters, which span uh, the length of what we've been studying these last several weeks. While the church is tucked away in heaven with the Lord, I believe my opinion, man will receive the wrath of God directly from Jesus Christ. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like to talk about justice. But this is God's justice on man's sin. God is perfect, and man's sin has to be dealt. It has to be reconciled somehow with his holiness. It must be dealt with as God cannot overlook sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood was shed for us, which is why I don't believe the church is in view here. Jesus dealt with our sin on Calvary and has given us a free offer to anyone who will receive his gift by faith and repent of their sins. But here in chapter 6 through 19, we're seeing what God is doing to a world that rejects Christ and his offer through the cross. Christ's wrath is now being poured out upon man, but in a certain measure. Because even in the midst of judgment, God relinquishes a little bit to try and get man to repent. Because God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not something that he's gleeful about. It's something that he mourns. And maybe there are some of you who haven't surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. I don't know. Maybe you're still in your sins. I fear that based on statistics. Jesus told us in the parable of the soils, it's only one out of four. I don't know. But please, if that's you, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ in faith. Don't put him off. Come to him while well, now is the today is the day of salvation. And this brings us to the culmination of what we're reading here in chapter 19. The second coming of Christ is upon us, which I think Kirk is doing next week, which I'm really looking forward to. It's upon us, but we're talking about this peculiar ceremony here that pops up in chapter 19 called the marriage supper of the lamb. What is this marriage supper? Who gets invited to this marriage supper? What is required to be able to partake of this marriage supper? Well, let's read to find out. Would you look at verses 1 through 5 with me? After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven singing, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. There's an eruption in heaven. Verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again, they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. So after these things, John hears a shout. Alleluia. The words, after these things, 
It's the word metatauta in the Greek. It means what, what he's dealing with here is what's happening after the judgment of Babylon. Chapters 17 and 18 refers to the events of those chapters. The celebration of the true bride, of the true bride of Christ, could not take place until the false bride of Babylon was judged and disposed. The final installment of the marriage of the Lamb is now underway. Now, for some of you, this is probably the second or third time you've heard this from me. But it bears repeating. If you remember the way that a Jewish wedding is structured in antiquity, this scene here in Revelation 19, the fact that this marriage supper at the end of the book of Revelation makes perfect sense. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. A Jewish wedding in antiquity follows thus. First, the son, a son, leaves his father's house and travels searching for a bride. You can see this picture, by the way, in Genesis 22 through 24, well, 23 and 24, when Abraham sends his servant Eliezer out to find a bride for Isaac. The son leaves his father's house, travels searching for a bride. Once he meets his bride, they enter into a ketubah, called, a, a, a covenant called the ketubah. The ketubah is signified and sealed by drinking wine and taking bread. That remind you of anything? Isn't that something? Jesus Christ left his father's house and came to this planet that he created searching out a bride for himself. The ketubah is signed and sealed by drinking wine. And at this point, this contract was so binding, they were officially married. You're, you, when you were engaged in Jewish culture, you were considered officially married. In other words, if you wanted to get a divorce from the engagement, you literally had to get a divorce. It was that big of a deal. And so the bride is now set apart for the groom. The bride now spends her days preparing to meet her groom. The groom then leaves what's called a surety or insurance or a dowry uh, for the bride. She, he, he usually left it with the bride's family. A dowry was insurance for the bride in case he didn't follow through on his promise, on his contractual end of the, end of the thing. Boy, if we did marriage like that today, we'd probably have a lot less divorce. <laughs> A lot more careful marriages. Jesus, and this is a picture of how Jesus left us, not with money or insurance, but he left us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I'm going to leave you with the helper. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will teach you all that I have taught you. So the only way to break this covenant was literally through a divorce. The groom then leaves her prospective bride, then travels back to his father's house, where he begins to construct an extension on to his father's house. Jesus said in John chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions or many, the Greek word there for mansions is the word rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And how long has Jesus been at it? Preparing a place for us. 
almost 2,000 years. That's pretty cool. So while he's building an extension onto the father's house, the father oversees the project. And once the groom is finished and the father deems that the house is ready, the father then dispatches the son to come for his bride for the wedding. And so he travels back with a a great procession. Now the bride, while the groom is gone, her job is to prepare herself, is to set herself apart, to get ready to meet her groom. And she is set apart for himself, for, for him. The groom usually would come unexpectedly. So he would come into town, usually at night. And as he was coming into the town of the bride, he would blow a trumpet. Does that sound familiar? The groom is set apart and she's usually sleeping and the groom would usually climb up a ladder and take her bride away in the wedding procession. And then they would go, they would come back to the father's house and they would enter into what in, in Hebrew is called the hoopah where the bride is hidden for seven days and the only one that's allowed to see her is the groom. And that's where they consummate the marriage. And then after seven days, the groom comes, brings his bride out and presents her. And that's when the marriage feast officially begins. So this scene in here in Revelation 19 is literally the third installment at the end of the marriage ceremony. The second coming of Christ is when we, the church, are presented as his bride to the world and we begin to rule and reign with Jesus. So with this understanding of this ancient Jewish wedding, let's look at the parable of the 10 virgins, which Jesus gave to his disciples there in Matthew 25. Now keep in mind that Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, his primary audience is a Jewish audience. So they that's why this was mentioned. So, in Jesus' day, although the day of a wedding was no, sort of known in the community, the exact hour was unknown. So the bridegroom can show up at his bride's house anytime. He can come in the morning, at noon, or even midnight. But as soon as he arrived at the house, the bride would pass word quickly that the bridegroom had come and the marriage was to begin. The community would then accompany the bride and the bridegroom as they made their way to the ceremony. So Jesus gives this parable of 10 virgins. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. All 10 had lamps, but only five took oil with them. Now, if you're a student of scripture, you'll know that oil in the Bible is almost always symbolic of the filling or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And those who receive Christ at salvation are filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is describing how all 10 virgins slept because they were tired. And this tells us that you really couldn't tell them apart other than what was inside their lamps. So the church is that way as well. There's lots of people in the church of Jesus Christ that look like everyone else. But there's no Holy Spirit within them because they have not submitted to Christ. And then there are those who live according to the Spirit who are convicted and repent of sin, who try to follow the Lord's will, who are 
driven by the Spirit to do the will of God. Jesus gives us an example of that in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, in the wheat and the tares. I won't read it, but Jesus describes that there is a time coming when an enemy sows tares, or literally weeds, or a Darnell plant is what they call it. It looks like wheat, but it's not really wheat. And you can't really tell wheat and tares apart until the harvest. You can't really tell them apart until the wheat starts sprouting kernels. Whereas the Darnell plant doesn't sprout anything. That's why Jesus says in the parable, wait till the end, then gather up the weeds to be burned and the wheat into my barn, he says. So Jesus goes on to say that these virgins were sleeping there there at midnight and then there was a cry. Here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And usually when the bridegroom came to meet his bride with his procession, they blew a trumpet before him announcing his arrival. I see this as the picture of the rapture of the church, in my opinion. I know some of y'all think I'm nuts and that's okay. We see this trumpet picture in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. Let me read it to you. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The word caught up in the Greek is the word harpazo. It literally means to seize with force or to snatch. God is going to snatch his church to himself. So as the virgins are startled out of their sleep, the foolish realize that they don't have any oil. They are not with the Spirit, or the Spirit is not in them. The oil is not something that cannot be bought or sold, only something that can be received. In other words, everyone must have their own oil personally from God. God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children. So as the foolish virgins were scrambling, excuse me. So as the foolish virgins were scrambling to procure oil, the five wise went with the bridegroom and the door was shut to the wedding. The wise took the bridegroom seriously and prepared themselves while they waited and set themselves apart for him while they waited. Christians who take the second coming of Christ seriously will prepare themselves seriously. You cannot tell me that Bible prophecy is not important. This is why it's important. It's so that we will be ready to meet the king. It's so that we will be ready to meet the king. So how do you prepare yourself seriously to meet the Lord? You stay in his word. You pray. You repent. You come to Christ. You fellowship with him. You fellowship with other believers. And 
as much as you are able to do the work of an evangelist as Paul instructs Timothy to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around you. Only those with an intimate knowledge of Christ, those who know him, those who know him. Think about how scary that is. Christ even says in this parable, truly I say to you to the five foolish virgins, virgins, I don't know you. That's chilling. Paul says, I believe it's in Philippians, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. To know him. Only those who with an intimate knowledge of Christ, those who have a relationship with him, those who've repented and turned to him as Savior will truly know him. It's not, an, it's not enough just to know about Jesus, but you must know him personally and intimately. In Isaiah 26, 20 and 21, this is an interesting passage. It says here, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. I believe right here in Isaiah, there's another picture of the rapture of the church. Come, my people, enter into your chambers. The word chambers there in the Hebrew uh, can signify wedding chambers. And I believe those of us who are believers in Jesus We'll be there raising our alleluias to Christ. What does that word mean? This wonderful word borrowed from Hebrew occurs four times in Revelation 19. Alleluia. It belongs here because God's people rejoice without restraint. We're back in Revelation 19. So from the, so South, what are they, what are they alleluiaing about? <laughs> if I could use that. What's going on in heaven? Why this, all of a sudden, this cosmic eruption of worship, of joy, this explosion of joy? Well, because Babylon has fallen. Salvation now is from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. Salvation from the whore of Babylon. Salvation from Antichrist and his false prophet. Salvation from the world and its system. Salvation from corruption of the earth. Salvation from slavery. Salvation from the struggle with sin. Salvation from pain and suffering. Salvation from depression. Salvation from disease and illness. And in this scene, Jesus delivers his people from all his enemies. The consummation of all things is now happening. And Jesus Christ is manifested here in chapter 19 for all of human history, for all his glory. Glory is, is ascribed to all persons of the Trinity. It is a massive, glorious thing that not only speaks of what God has done, but who he is. He is glorious in and of himself. Honor and power are also ascribed to him for what he is doing and is about to do. And it's the unrestrained crescendo of praise in heaven. There's so much happening here, and yet there's so much more to come. And as followers of Jesus, 
This is not a now reality. It's a now but not yet reality. The now is the cross has defeated all of our enemies. The not yet is the reality of these things being manifested. We can praise him for these things and take them to the bank that it will happen. And I find that when I praise him for what he has done, it all of a sudden puts my life into perspective. When I praise him, no matter the situation in my life, it reduces the size of my problems and it increases the size of my God. When I praise him, it keeps me humble. It keeps me at rest and it keeps me dependent upon Jesus. When I praise him, it keeps me in his will and useful for ministry. When I praise him, it gives me a sense of awe of who he is rather than a sense of condemnation for who I am. Many years ago, there's a pretty well-known worship leader named Jeremy Camp. Anybody ever hear of Jeremy Camp? So he runs in sort of the same circles I ran in. His dad is a Calvary Chapel pastor in Indiana. And so Jeremy Camp married a, his first wife. And she came down with cancer. And they went through, after they were engaged, in fact, while she had cancer. And she thought that he would reject her because of her cancer diagnosis. And he said, no, quite the contrary. We're, get, we're still getting married, even though her illness was terminal. They end up getting married and they spent, I think it was three glorious months together. And then the day came when she went home to be with the Lord. And as Jeremy was grieving over his wife who had just passed, he said the Lord spoke to him and said, Jeremy, worship me right now. Seems odd, doesn't it? But he said, Lord, how? He said, just do it. He began to just worship and praise Jesus right there next to his deceased wife. And he said the Holy Spirit flooded him. And he was still grieving. But God's presence was with him. And it brought him peace. The only right response in your life when you're going through trials and tribulations and difficulties is not to fret. It's not to try and search for a solution. It's to stop first and worship. And worship. Because he is worthy no matter what. And then they, the church in heaven goes on to say, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot. Babylon was responsible for the corruption and confusion of all the earth. Babylon was responsible for the deaths of millions of saints. Babylon was responsible for millions of enslaved people. Babylon is responsible for turning millions and millions and millions of people away from God and his son, Jesus. And here the saints are rejoicing because it was only right that she was judged. The wrath poured out on her is well-deserved, especially in light of God's holiness and purity. And nobody's going to cry unfair. Everyone will say true and righteous are your judgments. The word true here is the word in the Greek, alethinos, which means correct and measured. God's judicial punishment is the correct thing to do here. Nobody will cry 
unfair. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And this was an answer to prayer from the saints who were killed by the beast. Back in Revelation chapter 6, it says, When he opened the fifth seal under the altar of the souls that had been slain by the, for the word of God, they said, O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God indeed has here in Revelation 19. Then another alleluia is raised for the destruction of Babylon reduced to ashes. There's a finality to this scene and the idea that Babylon will never exist again to this point. It's system designed to get people to worship themselves, designed to lull believers asleep to the reality of the gospel, designed to promote rampant immorality, designed to promote violence and destruction to God's image bearers will be completely destroyed. It's just that Babylon will be destroyed. Don't know if you know this or not, but this is the devil's world. This is the unseen realm, rebellious, supernatural beings. This is their world, but it will be taken from them. But we also know Christ rules and reigns in us and his kingdom is present with us and the enemy has no rights over us whatsoever. None. If you were in Christ, he has no rights over you. Jesus has delivered you from the penalty of sin. Jesus is presently sanctifying you, releasing you from the power of sin. And then someday here in the book of Revelation, he will free you from the presence of sin. There is a present reality for you as a follower of Christ of now and not yet. We live under Christ's rule. The kingdom of God can be defined in this way. The rule of God in the place of God in the people of God. Christ is ruling through his church, so it's important to keep that perspective. The kingdom is with us now, not just when he returns physically. And how important it is that we are citizens of heaven. I remember 20 years, how long have we lived here now? 23, 22 years? 22 years ago, when God called us to move from San Diego to Charlotte, uh, with our wee little one, Sophia. Um, what was she, six months old at the time? Something like that. The Lord had made it clear that this is where we were to come. And so once the decision was made, we immediately started making provisions to move across the country. We set up a new bank account. We set up utilities in our, our apartment. We set up communications with those who, were going to, who we were going to work with, who I was going to work with. So in a sense, we were already living for and in North Carolina, even though we were physically resided in San Diego. Our hearts and minds, in the same way, were already living in the kingdom, but physically we're still here in Babylon. <laughs> so in a sense, you could think of this as we reside here, but our home is the coming kingdom. Verse six, and I heard as it were a voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying hallelujah for the lord god omnipotent reigns notice the word omnipotent there means all powerful verse 7 and 8 let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright 
for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse nine. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So the marriage supper of the lamb has come. Not at the beginning of the tribulation, at the end. Has come. This is the final phase of the marriage covenant. It is the final celebration and feasting for those in Christ. The focus in a wedding ceremony as we know it today is on the bride. But in Jewish tradition, the focus is on the groom. And that's how it will be during the marriage supper of the Lamb, as it should be. The focus will be on our groom, Jesus Christ. And notice that the Bible here says, and his wife has made herself ready. How has the bride made herself ready? What is the requirement to be ready to take part in a kingdom feast? What are these garments that that the Bible's talking about, that the bride is clothed in linen, pure and bright? How do you receive one of these garments? Well, let 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 me illustrate it this way. There was a British man, and he was out one day collecting his mail. And he notices a fancy envelope with a coat of arms and he opens it up and he sees that it's from the Queen of England and that he's been invited to meet with her at Buckingham Palace. And in the middle of celebrating, he opens up another envelope with a list of requirements for seeing the Queen. One is that even though he has the invitation, he has to wear a $10,000 suit from the best tailor in London. He's thinking, I can't afford a 10, excuse me, 10,000 pound suit. Where am I going to get 10,000 pounds? My suit's worth maybe 50 to $100. And just when he's thinking he's never going to get to see the queen, which is a huge honor for the British, he gets a call. He says, you know, you don't know me, but I know you. And I know you've been invited to see the queen. And so I also know that you can't afford a $10,000 suit. But I have one that's never been worn that would fit you perfectly. And you can have it. So the man turns up at Buckingham Palace wearing a $10,000 suit. And just as he's about to go in, he sees another guy saying, but I have an invitation. And one of the guys with the f- funny black hats with the red, you know what I'm talking about? He says, I'm sorry, sir. Even with that invitation, you cannot. You are not allowed to see the queen in that suit. The queen has a very high standard when it comes to being in her presence. And she requires excellence that most people cannot attain. However, She makes a way for people to see her if they accept her terms and her provisions to stand in her presence. Do you see the picture? The bride has made herself ready, not by a list of do's and don'ts. The bride embraced the cross of Jesus Christ. He embraced his terms, his way, and therefore Jesus made a way through his blood to come and stand in his presence And through that, Jesus says, if you accept that on my terms, here's your garment. Here's your wedding garment. Enter into the joy 
of the Lord. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire, to put Christ on, to put his righteousness on. And notice it says, and it was to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Fine linen was granted, not earned, the Bible says. You cannot earn the right to stand in God's presence, clean and pure. You can only be given the right by faith, which Jesus freely offers. And Jesus will dress us in his best royal robes. We're arrayed with the wardrobe he has for us, which will give him even more glory because the wardrobe belongs to him. This reminds us of the prodigal son. He repented, he came back, and his father put a royal robe on him. And that's the heart of our father. He wants to dress us in the best. And what do these robes represent? The Bible says here, it says they represent the righteous acts of the saints. What does that mean? That if you have to do enough good things, you'll get into heaven? No. No, 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 no. The works here are works done by faith. Works that God prepared. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. Poema in the Greek means poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Where do those good works come from? It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You don't create the good works. He does. You just simply walk into them. That's incredibly freeing. And of course, James 2.22 says, you, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. In other words, fa- uh, works is the, is pro- uh, I'm sorry, faith produces the works. It's not a got to, it's a get to. We get to do things for the Lord. So brothers and sisters, God's desire is to use you wherever you're at in your ministry. And make no mistake about it, all of us are in full-time ministry, every single one of us. I I remember all I ever wanted was to be a full-time senior pastor of a church, but the Lord never allowed me to do it. And I never understood why, but boy, years later, I'm so glad because so God has used me in spite of me in the workplace to touch people's lives in Christ. And it's still happening to this day. So thankful for my job. So thankful I get to go to work every day and share Jesus with people. Long lasting relationships as well. So wherever you're at in your ministry, God's not concerned with your ability. He's not concerned with how much Bible knowledge you have, though you should read the word. You should study the word. He's more concerned with your availability. Ministry is exciting because God has tailor-made it for you. Ministry is just not sitting behind a pulpit like this. But it's in the grocery store, the shop, the office, your car, Starbucks, wherever. The reality is God has called all of us into full-time ministry. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said, these are the true sayings of God. Blessed means how happy. If you remember the the Beatitudes back in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. 
means how happy, the same word that Jesus used. How happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Verse 10, last verse. Look at how John reacts. Look with me at verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. You think he was a little excited? But he said to me, Whoa, see that you do not do that, for I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Whoa, big boy, hold up. There were a lot of, there were a lot of uh, my kind that got in trouble in Genesis 6 for this kind of thing. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold your horses there. But John was so, can you, can you just see his heart here? He's so overwhelmed at this explosion of praise that he's got to worship something. And any of us in John's position probably would have done the same thing. We would have. But this angel is adamant in not accepting worship from John. No doubt this angel was around in eternity past when Satan received the worship of heaven before he was banished. So this angel says that the spirit or the essence of Bible prophecy is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Please hear that. When somebody gets up in the Christian world and begins to make the second coming of Christ the main thing and not Jesus Christ the main thing, that's a bad sign. This is all about Jesus. If we miss that, then we've missed the entire point of prophecy. As the angel says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's so easy for us too, to get caught up in the messenger as John was than the message itself. We should be careful not to idolize the messengers that God sends our way. We can be so overwhelmed, we can feel a deep connection to them that all of a sudden we miss Jesus. And we have a word for them in this day and age of social media. They're called influencers. Some kid makes a series of random videos that go viral. All of a sudden, he's got 50 million subscribers. And all of a sudden, they are idolized and made famous. Don't buy into that. Don't be in awe or enamored by them. Most of them are lost. And John here wanted to bow to an angel. There's lots of people that bow to the latest influencers on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. And there are people caught up in that more than Jesus. Never forget that the book of Revelation is to point us to Jesus Christ it's to make us in awe of him. And the purpose is not to get caught up in current events, newspaper theology about the return of Christ. The purpose is to get caught up in Christ. And I'll end with this. There was a college professor. And he had a mysterious, strange habit of removing a tennis ball from his jacket pocket as he walked in to a room, to a lecture hall each morning. He would set it on the corner of the podium. And after giving the lecture for the day, he'd once again pick up that tennis ball 
and he'd place it back in his jacket pocket and he would leave the room. No one ever understood why he did this until one day a student fell asleep during the lecture. (laughs) The professor didn't miss a word of his lecture while he walked over to the podium, picked up the tennis ball, and threw it, hitting the sleeping student squarely on the top of of the dome of the head. The next day, the professor walked into the room, reached into his jacket, and removed a baseball. No one ever fell asleep in his class again for the rest of the semester. That was free, by the way. <laughs> for the believer, we watch and wait out of anticipation for, the, for a wedding. For those of us that love Jesus, And what he's done for us, we look forward to his coming because he has given us the confidence in himself that we look to our blessed hope. But for those who are playing religion, there's a lot to fear. That tennis ball now is going to be turned into a baseball later. And it won't be pleasant. But we must be ready to meet our Lord. Jesus said it this way. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Are you ready? Do you have your garments on? Are you dressed for the wedding? What a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marriage supper of the Lamb, the food that will be served, the atmosphere, the worship, the praise, the joy, the lounging around the table with you, the the presence of your holy multitude, the presence of each other, the saints, the it, it's just going to be incredible all made possible because of your blood that you shed for us what really blows my mind lord is that you're going to serve us we're we're supposed to serve you but you said the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life as a ransom so that we can be invited to the the marriage supper. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.